And in this moment of wrath, in this moment of judgment, you would think that that would be the end for Cain as well. But because of Cain's status as the firstborn, and because of God's uh, covenant commitment, his, his desire to see humanity grow, uh, he instead protects Cain. Instead of um, completely punish him, he does punish him. He, he takes this farmer, this one who was built for uh, raising crops and so forth, and he removes him from the land. He says, you, you can't do that anymore. That which is your desire, that which is your love, that which is your passion will no longer be a part of who you are. And Cain says, whoever sees me will, will want me dead. And it says that God placed a mark on Cain. And again, we're not sure what this mark is, but we know that ultimately it's grace. Because it's God saying, you can't harm this one. I have preserved him. I have protected him. And anybody who does um, act against Cain, I will judge them sevenfold for what they've done. Adam and Eve have uh, another child. His name is Seth. Um, and uh, he is, in many ways, the, the embodiment, the replacement of, of uh, Abel. He is a godly man, a man who is pursuing God and pursuing God's ways. But Cain's line is a line of deceit. Cain's line is a, is a line of, of problems and sin and difficulties. And in particular, he has uh, a, a descendant whose name is Lamech. And Lamech is of such a mindset that... Um, such arrogance, such rebellion that he says, he brags later on in chapter 4 here, that a man bruised him, so he killed him. He, he insulted me, so he died. And he says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech is 70 times seven. And you see in this expression, you see in this response, the depth of sin and how quickly we can, when we get away from God's plan, when we get away from God's desire, we can descend into things that were unimaginable just before. I mean, you have the whole, the whole issue of, of Cain killing his brother over jealousy. That's now deteriorated even more to a man killing another just for insulting him. This is what sin can do. This is what sin does to humanity. And so you have the, the line of Cain, and you also have the line of Seth. And the line of Seth, as we said, it's a godly line. It, it's a line that, that has in it um, uh, two very uh, interesting individuals, uh, Enoch is um, uh, several down the line there, about six down the line. And Enoch is distinctive because apparently Enoch never died. The passage simply says that he uh, began to, to, to just walk with God. He's one of the two individuals in the Old Testament, Elijah being the other, who never died. Um, his son, Methuselah, is the other interesting one. He is the oldest man 
to ever live in terms of the ages that are listed there. And so uh, you actually have a, just a bit of trivia there. If you want to stump some people, you could say, uh, I'm the oldest man who ever lived, yet I died before my father. And so you have a little riddle there you can play, see, see if people get that. Okay? Because his father never died. A little tricky there. Anyway. You have these two lines, and the, the line of Seth is recorded for us in, in Genesis chapter 5, and then we come to Genesis 6, and you have there in Genesis 6, the, the, the sin of humanity is so overwhelming, so uh, grotesque, so intense that God decides to judge humanity. Only one individual, his name is Noah, is found righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And God decides to use him to, uh, to save humanity, to be the representative, to be the one who carries forward uh, the image of God. And so God sends a flood. Noah, having built an ark, is safe. Uh, Noah, his three sons and their wives are all safe within the ark, as well as the animals that are collected there. And then the waters subside. And you have God placing the rainbow, the covenant, the promise in the skies that he would no longer, no, not ever again destroy the earth by flood. It's a well-known story. You, 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 you've heard it well, many times before. You've heard it as, a, as a stories of um, hope, correction, encouragement. Um, I find it interesting that... Uh, uh, we've changed, turned Noah's Ark into nursery uh, decorations quite often. I mean, I understand there's animals and so forth, and you have the Ark and stuff, but but still, it, it's kind of a, for me, it's always been kind of a disconnect between the destruction of the flood and our care in the nursery and so forth. Nevertheless, it is, uh, again, it is a reflection of, of God's goodness, God's rescue, but also of God's wrath, God's judgment on sin. And before we continue, or as we continue the, the journey of understanding God and his position as king, before we continue in looking at who he is and who he's revealed himself to be, we need to take seriously the reality of God's wrath. Because it's only in understanding God's wrath that we can understand God's grace. It's only in understanding the seriousness of sin that we can understand the, 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 the giftedness and the graciousness of the cross. It's only in understanding the depravity to which we can fall that we can understand the amazing reality of the salvation that God offers. So I want us to look at this narrative this morning this, that I've just outlined in, in brief and look at it in just a little bit more detail to, to gain some insight into who our God is and this, this other aspect of who He is, His wrath. That's a very real part of His nature and His essence. And the first thing we need to understand based upon this text is that wrath is a justifiable demeanor, justifiable demeanor of a king. When you are a king, when someone is a king and they are the absolute sovereign, when they are the absolute 
uh, one in authority. To rebel against that and to to turn against that is uh, indeed something that deserves judgment. It deserves wrath. It deserves anger. God's wrath is not something where he's one of these uh, individuals who who just uh, loses control. God is never out of control in his wrath. God is never overwhelmed or controlled by the anger that he feels. I know sometimes in our own experience that can be the case where anger just so overwhelms us that we, we lose control of our, the words we say. We lose control of the actions that we, that we take. We let ourselves move in a direction that's wholly inappropriate. But God's not like that. His wrath is uh, controlled. His wrath is focused. His wrath is justified. And not only that, but His, his wrath is important. I have a quote from Martin Luther King. Junior, that I think encapsulates this truth. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And so in that quote, we see what? We see a truth that if injustice in any nature, in any presence, goes unresponded to. It doesn't just affect the the one person who's done the injustice or who's received the injustice. It affects all of us. And as king, as sovereign, God's responsibility is not just for how we respond to him. That obviously in and of itself gives him the right to do whatever he wants to do. But it's also taking care of and responding to how our actions affect those around us. And so it is justifiable, it's important, it's significant, it is essential that God respond to sin, that God respond to the rebellion that so often finds expression in our actions, the rebellion that's portrayed here uh, in Genesis 4 through 9. He had to respond. Without a response, there would be no hope for justice. There would be no hope for a future. There would be no hope for any individual. Now, his wrath is in proportion, it's in response to the reaction of humanity. And you see two, the two lines of Cain and Seth play out here. And what you notice is that you have the quick corruption of the line of Cain. Cain begins with rebellion. His, his response is to ignore God's instruction. And, and as such, you, you see the... The, the quick decline. There, there's not a note of, of encouragement, really, in Cain's line. There's not, there's not a, a note of individuals that you look at and say, oh, there's a standout good person. There is very much a, a generational nature to the sin that takes hold in our life. We've seen it, we see it every day in, in lives where... Uh, Abused children become abused, abusing adults. Where children of alcoholics become alcoholics themselves. Where promiscuity in a marriage leads to children 
and their children having promiscuity as well. And there's just a disconnect between God's design and God's desire for, for life and for marriage and for happiness. And what a father does very much, what a mother does, that very much has influence on what their children will do. And that's manifested, that's expressed very clearly with Cain's line. and The sin, the degradation that, that, that takes place here, you, the exaggerated response of Lamech to uh, his wound. But you also see a subtle corruption of the line of Seth. Seth, his line is described in chapter 5, and as we noted, it's full of remarkable individuals, godly individuals, people who sought to follow God, culminating with the individual Noah who is at the center of the flood narrative. But at the beginning of chapter 6, you have an account that is somewhat puzzling. And we've looked at this before. I've, I've preached a, a message on this before, taught on this before, but uh, we need to revisit it here just again to, to get a sense. It's, it's one of those passages you look at that, that's just kind of strange initially. But I think if you, if you read it in the right light, in the right context, it, it becomes very clear what's in fact going on here. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6 says, When mankind began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took and they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now, when you read this passage, there's, there's two basic interpretations that you come across in Christianity, two basic views of what's going on here. One view is that the sons of God that are revealed here or reflected upon here are uh, angelic beings of some sort, and that you have these angels who looked upon uh, humanity, the women of humanity in particular, and were attracted to them and left their heavenly abode to come and have relations with the angels. And this resulted in all sorts of corrupt and crazy creatures, referred to perhaps as the Nephilim. And that's a very common view. You, you'll, you'll hear that view espoused in, in pulpits all over America, okay, all over the world for that matter. It's a very common view. And it primarily boils down to the fact that the phrase sons of God usually means uh, when you have the son of, the, the last word that's applied to that is the essence or the nature. And so sons of God usually refers to something that is divine, which would, by definition, would be angels in this case. Okay, And people will draw from passages in, in Jude and, and perhaps in, in Peter as potential cross-references to this but there's a difficulty, I think, there's multiple difficulties. And uh, again, we don't have time for me to go into all of them. I've, I've, I've preached this message before. But I'll, I'll just suffice it to say, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that really fits the context. I don't think it really fits God's response and so forth in, in what's happening here. I, I don't think it fits the overall flow of the narrative. And, and to be honest, I think it's kind of weird. So what do I think is going on here? What do I? How do I interpret this passage? 
I would translate the phrase sons of God as godly sons. That's how I would render it. And so it's not a reference to divine, to divine creatures or, or angels, but it's a reference instead to the line of Seth. That in time, the line of Seth, the ones who were the godly line, okay, the ones who were this on this trek, this journey of obeying God and walking with God, over time they became attracted to the descendants of Cain. And they began to intermarry. So much so that by the time you get to Noah, there's just Noah. Because when you look at the, the line of Seth, it's not as if there's just one son for each child, for each parent. They're going to have other descendants. They're going to have other uh, sons and so forth. So what I'm convinced is happening here in Genesis 6 is that uh, verses 1 through 4 is that you've lost over time any sense of godliness as there's been this intermarriage with Cain's line and, and the corruption that's there. It has corrupted as well Seth's line so that there's just one man, one family now that is righteous. Now, just to answer the question, because if you've not heard this before, you, you know, what about the Nephilim or the giants? How, how would they be the offspring of Seth's line and Cain's line? The passage nowhere says that the Nephilim or the giants are the descendants or the offspring. It says they were around then. It's a marker of the corruptness and the evilness of the people. It's not saying that this union between these sons of God and daughters of men or godly sons and daughters of, of, of Cain resulted in the birth of these giants. It's saying they were around then. These Nephilim were around then. It's, it's a marker of how dark the times were. That's all it is. The only offspring that are listed here are what? The mighty men of renown. The men of power. That's what the text says. So I say all that to say this. When we talk about the judgment, when we talk about God's wrath, when we talk about the presence of it and his response to humanity. These two entities, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, that have both become corrupted, reveal to us a very important biblical truth that was part of our reading earlier. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is worthy of judgment. Every one of us is worthy of wrath. And it's important for us to see that and to understand that. It's important for us to, to, to understand that God's judgment is not ever unfair. We all deserve it. Every one of us. Sometimes not getting what you deserve is a good thing. And that's certainly the case with humanity and our stance before God. We are all worthy of a judgment. But this also reveals that bad things really don't happen to good people. Really, that's only happened once in history, and he volunteered. When Jesus, the only truly good one, 
suffered on our behalf. There's also a note of the importance of godly parenting here. Our influence on those who God has given us to raise, to minister to. Let me just encourage you with this word. God did not call us to raise good kids. God called us to raise disciples. People who are going to follow the God we serve. If your kid is kind and respectful and patriotic and all those things that we want, but they don't have a relationship with God, they don't have anything. We've been called to make disciples. And I don't say this to get you to walk around in a defeatist, fatalistic mindset. But I say this to help you to see the amazing goodness of God's grace. We all deserve judgment. We're all worthy of judgment. God is well within his right to wipe us all out as a sovereign king who's been rebelled against. But he doesn't. In fact, he sent his son to die in our place. What a love. What a grace. What a goodness. A second thing I think we need to see here as we begin to understand the wrath of God in this place in this passage is that wrath is not the first response of the king. You ever been in relationship with somebody, whether it was a boss or a friend or someone even more significant than that, that you're always afraid to make a mistake in front of because the very first response you were going to receive was wrath. The very first response you were going to receive was anger. Whatever it was they did, whatever it was, uh, that, that whatever mistake it was, you knew that it was going to be nothing but wrath coming from that person. And I think sometimes we get that perspective with God. And we walk around almost on eggshells, fearful that if I mess up, he's, he's just waiting there to, to squash me, to, to crush me, to destroy me. But this passage makes it very clear that wrath is not his first response. You see that in a couple ways. First, you see it in God's patience. Genesis 6.3, it says, Their days will be 120 years. Now, there's two ways to understand that. Some have said that this is a lessening of the lifespan of humanity, and, and that may very well be what it is. There, there's nothing really I can say that that's apart from that. But it, it also seems to be, if you look at the chronology of stuff, how many years until the flood? That when God makes this declaration, it's 120 years until the flood comes. And so it could actually be both of them. But regardless, we know that there is a massive amount of time between his declaration that man must be judged and the flood coming. And we know that during that time, we know that Noah preached. Now, the text here in Genesis nowhere says that Noah was a preacher. We sometimes hear that, that, that he was preaching as he's building. You know, people are coming and they're mocking him and so forth. A lot of that's our creation. But we do know he preached the gospel, not the gospel, we know he preached righteousness. How do we know that? 
Because Peter tells us so in 2 Peter 2.5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so we have to expect that during this time, during this intervention, during this interval between God's decision to judge and the actual carrying out of it, that there was this, this, this message of repentance, this message of, of invitation, this message of, of calling people back. And if I am correct about the 120 years, that's, that's 120 years of reaching out. I don't know about you, but in my patience, I, I get tired after a couple moments, people not responding to me. But you have at least 100 years here of, of no preaching. God was patient. Not to mention all the time before that as he watched people reject his ways and neglect his ways, and in between Seth, uh, the birth of Seth and, and these events. There's hundreds of years there. God is patient. That's his, his first response. Second way we see that his, not his first response is, is the grief that God expresses in verse 6. When he says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and he was deeply grieved. Now, this grief is, is not an impotent remorse as if things got beyond his control. It's not a, him looking at the situation as, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Man, did I make a mistake here? That's not what the grief is expressing. That's not consistent with what we know of God's knowledge and God's understanding of, of history and so forth. Instead, it is a wrathful hurt born of sovereign, rejected by his people. It's the hurt that expresses that, that is expressed because the relationship that's so much a part of who he is is not what it's supposed to be. It's not regret as if he didn't see it coming. It's the hurt that results despite the fact that he saw it coming. And the relationship that's here, that's broken. But there's an important note here as well in, in the grief. He says, he says that uh, that he, he must he must he must punish mankind because the the thoughts of their the, the thoughts of their mind and the iniquity in their in their perspective is constantly turning away from me always. And what's interesting is if you move to chapter nine where he's rescuing mankind. And he gives the, the the rainbow. The reason he gives the rainbow and the reason he promises never to judge man again is the exact same reason he expresses for his judgment, that the thoughts of mankind are constantly turned away from him. Yes, the wrath is deserved, but it's also, again, his relationship and his desire and his grief drives him to salvation as well, to rescue as well. And so we, we note from this that God's patience towards us is not a pass on our behavior, but an opportunity to respond. And we need to realize that this is true of others and not just ourselves. Too often we want grace for ourselves and judgment for them. But God is gracious to all, and we must learn 
to express that graciousness as well. The third thing about the wrath of God here is that it's also not his final response. It's not his first response. It's also not his last response. You see in this passage, in in this text from chapter 4 through 9, you see that God didn't abandon the unreconciled brother. He didn't abandon Cain despite his disobedience, despite the fact that that he had turned his back on God and not listened to God's instruction. God didn't say, well, I warned you, and here we are. Now I'm done with you. God continued to show him grace. God continued to reach out to him. And then, of course, with the narrative of the flood, you have him what? You have him laying down his bow, his weapon. Now, I don't know about you, but for some reason growing up, I never connected rainbow to an archery bow. Never made the connection. Okay, But that's the word that's actually used in Genesis. See, I lay my archery bow down. That's what he's saying. He's saying the weapon that I could have used against you, continue to use against you, I'm laying that down. And you'll see it every time you see the rainbow. What a picture of of grace. What a picture of power. You don't have to be afraid. I laid my weapon down. It's God continually reaching out to us. It's God continually ministering to us. His wrath was sure. But his wrath wasn't the final word. His final word was his son. Hebrews tells us, coming to die on our behalf. And I want to make one more note of connection between this passage and Jesus that I think is significant. And that is, in this passage and and in Jesus' coming, we see God establish a model of forgiveness that's beyond our capacity for sin. If you remember, I mentioned Lamech. And Lamech, there in Genesis 4, he kills a man for abusing him. He, he, it's the, the attack, the murder, is well out of proportion to what he received. And he says what? If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged 70 times seven. And there's another use of that phrase elsewhere in Scripture in Matthew chapter 18. Peter comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says what? I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I'm convinced in that exchange with Peter, Jesus is pulling in Lamech's comment. And what he's saying there is just as Lamech's response of vengeance and wrath and sin was well out of proportion to what should have happened, our forgiveness of others should be well out of proportion of what anybody would think is reasonable. 
In other words, Jesus' response there to Peter was not just forgive over and over and over again, but forgive things that people would deem unforgivable. Just as Lamech was extraordinary in his sin and, and anger, be extraordinary in your forgiveness and mercy. Why? Because that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus on the cross, God's response to our sin is well out of proportion to what anybody would think is reasonable. He gave His Son, His sinless Son, to die a death He didn't deserve so that we might have life. Completely unreasonable. And yet, something we can hold on to. Wrath is indeed real. God will indeed judge sin. But so is hope. So is deliverance. So is redemption. So is God's offer of salvation today. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in just a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I want to invite you to come down and take my hand. Let's go to God together and talk about that relationship that He desires to have with you. Maybe there's other things that are on your heart, things that you just want to pray about or Things you want to take to the Lord. It's time for that as well. It's your chance to respond to God, to respond to His offer of grace, to the reality of wrath, and to find, instead of fear and inability to act, hope and freedom and joy that God alone can offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to stay. God, I pray that there's someone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you. And right now, right here, in this moment, that they would respond by giving their life to you, coming forward and communicating that decision. For others, Lord, that are, are dealing with a call on their life or with other issues, things that they're perhaps are struggling with. God, I pray that you would draw them and, and grant them the hope and peace, Lord, and that, Lord, we'd be responsive to your leadership now, to what you're leading us to, what you're calling us to. Lord, whether it's right where we're, we stand or coming forward, Lord, let us express our hearts and minds to you in sincerity to receive the grace and hope that only you can offer. It's in Christ's name we pray.